Thank you. Well, good morning. I um, want to start off with a couple of personal remarks. Um, some of it follows up with what Joe just said. Um, but the first thing I'm going to say is last weekend, my wife and I celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary. And um, we spent the day in uh, Yellow Springs on a day trip um, just because of work schedules and things like that. And, um, you know, we had a, we've often reflected, obviously, on our uh, relationship uh, over 28 years. Um, and last weekend, uh, we had a chance to talk about our, you know, just our journey in some specific ways and highlight some memories and all of that. And the reason I'm sharing this is some of you may know um, my wife would be identified by society as white. Um, her ancestry is from Yugoslavia. Um, her grandmother was a, was a uh, I guess, a clerical error away from being able to be designated or entered into the Daughters of the American Revolution. Um, her father was, um, who's since passed away, threatened to kill her, me, and my family when uh, he found out that I was black when we were dating. And it took a while for her um, family in Columbus, uh, her grandparents and her mom, to uh, get used to the idea that um, their, their daughter, granddaughter, was going to be married to me. So I share that to, um, you know, kind of communicate that. You know, what's real about this issue is the things that have been constructed in our society. Um, you know, it, th those are the things that divide us. Those are the things that have kept us apart. Those are the things that um, make this issue so palpable still today. And um, I believe that my relationship with my wife, and we now have four children, some of you know my youngest. Uh, you may not have met the other ones. Um, but it's through authentic relationship. It's like the way we overcome this is when we, are, when we choose to be in authentic, intimate relationship with each other. And that's something that um, I've attempted to communicate and what I'm going to do today and in the future and what we've been trying to do in this MEIQ series is help you understand what about the way we do society in America and the way we do church has contributed to keeping us separated and prevented us from some of the more intimate, authentic relationships that um, we are really called to. And so, as Joe said, this won't be the last time that I am going to be interacting with you all, and there'll be other things that you'll get an opportunity to do um, here in the next uh, several months that I believe will help, you know, kind of 
do what, whatever re-engineering, retooling you all might need to do as a congregation to, um, to begin to become the welcoming, engaging, um, unifying congregation I know you all aspire to. So, that being said, uh, last week, we can go to the review now, next slide. Uh, last week, um, or last time I was with you all, I closed with some, some of the things that were problematic uh, about um, you know, the way we make decisions around how we are, do our organizations and all of that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of re review some of that, but next slide. Um, but I wanna remind you of the racist origins of the church. Um, it was in, you know, right around the time that the Constitution was being um, established and developed, um, the, there was a United Methodist Church that um, had a welcomed, in some fashion, um, black folks to worship with them. And one of the leaders, um, Richard Allen, had chosen to pray at the altar and that was taboo. They didn't want that to happen. They had built a balcony for the black folks to sit in, and they did not want any, like, kind of anybody black to be down in the front praying. So they physically removed him. The whole, every, all the black folks in that congrega congregation left, and then within a few years, they had started their own church, and then eventually the first African-American denomination, African Methodist Episcopal, and those churches still exist to this day. Um, and that church that they started in um, Philadelphia is still in existence today as a, uh, as a church. Next slide. Then I talked about the church growth movement. And the significance about that is not just this offhand critique of church growth, but what it did at the time it was introduced to American society. That was, you know, it was really kind of in the 60s into the 70s, right after civil rights and lots of racial strife. Um, some of us, I was born in 1960, so I wasn't as cognizant um, of all of that. But in 68, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, I was well aware of that and all of the things that took place then. But church growth movement comes along with a strategy of homogeneity. And the net of it is, next slide, it... Um, normalize this idea that we can be racially divided in the church. I mean, we were already segregated by fiat in American society. Churches had already segregated themselves uh, going back over uh, the issue of slavery before emancipation and in the wake of emancipation. So there was already some strife, but scripture wasn't clear. Scripture didn't co-sign um, segregation. Never did. And um, you may have to keep hitting the, yeah, there we go. And um, so, so for our, in our country, it's been 235 years of the sort of growth and evolution of the evolution of the church. And it still remains the most, one of the most segregated institutions in our society to this day. And it's not necessarily because people want it to be that way. It is, a lot of it has to do with the, um, the values that sort of govern the way we decide to do organizations, what we think church is, all of that. So next slide. I um, use this iceberg metaphor a lot to kind of make these points, but our society has the dominant cultural values. Um, you've probably heard that term before. 
Um, are those values, of which are, our socioeconomic system is sort of built on those values, our socioeconomic economic system then influences the way we develop our organizations, values, policies, and the procedures and things um, are based upon that. Then we develop our programs and services that we deliver to, or prepare to deliver to the community. We staff those programs and services, deliver them, and then people encounter them as we deliver them. So in this issue, when we're talking about race, and in particular racial and ethnic minorities that live in poverty, this iceberg illustration is the metaphor that communicates what actually ends up happening more often than people want to um, accept. Next slide. So this rendering of the illustration kind of unpacks it a little bit more, but you have to understand that racism has shaped American society from the very beginning. So those dominant values that um, seem benign to us, and I'm going to share those with you again uh, in a second, um, they really were shaped by racist ideas and beliefs and behaviors of the folks who founded the American society. Our socioeconomic system was established and built on the enterprise of human chattel slavery. I mean, we didn't have an economy or a socioeconomic system if it were not for slavery. And the tenets of slavery, the, 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 there's a lot of practices that were developed uh, during slavery in terms of business practices, um, labor management practices. There is a reason why the preferred business strategy is to pay as little as possible for labor. That didn't just happen randomly. That happened because you used to get labor for free or for whatever investment you had to make in maintaining your slaves. Um, but now you have to pay people. So, you know, what do you do? So if you're a, you know, capitalist or somebody who's trying to make money, you're going to try to minimize labor costs. That's a precedent that was established because of slavery in this country. Um, then we had the church growth movement, as I referenced, and then we start developing our churches. We start staffing our churches, and then we start developing our ministry programs. All of those things, you have to connect the dot all the way back to the way slavery and the ideas and beliefs and um, practices of racism that got baked into our socioeconomic system. You have to connect those dots to understand why it still goes on today. Next slide. So I've just illustrated that, but here's the, here's the you know, kind of explanation. These, the, the, the men who established this society and established our socioeconomic system, system um, they, they owned slaves. I mean, that was part of the deal. I mean, that's, they had them. It was, I think it's somewhere in 14 of the first 17 presidents owned slaves or some odd number like that, um, or their family's legacy um, was connected to slavery. Um, the term racialization is what I've communicated that kind of explains how racism and racist ideas got infused into our socioeconomic system. And what I've been able to do is identify four values. There's a lot of things, but there are four values 
that we all have um, been socialized into that continue to keep it perpetuated, regardless of whether we want to or not. And what are those values? Next slide. So <clears throat> when it comes to leadership, we tend to centralize leadership um, around a, you know, a CEO or you know, the, the top person in the organizational chart and the decision-making power is kind of controlled at the top. And what that ends up doing is control when it makes itself into the, you know, wakes, wakes its way into the community. When we think about education in our society, um, it's really about the mastery of information. And so, you know, we want to disseminate information as broadly, as widely as we can. And so all of the teaching you know, kind of constructions tend to be organized around the teacher, or teaching-centered is the term. So it's among the reasons why, if any of you all went to a big school like Ohio State, your freshman English class had 400 people in it. Or your megachurch had thousands of people who would show up on a Sunday to listen to a sermon. The view of time tends to be linear. So six months is you know, the time of a program, and you expect to have some sort of outcome. That comes from the assembly line when you're making widgets. So you want to expedite that. You want to make sure that that's so you want to have outcomes. So how many widgets can we produce in a little, you know, shortest amount of time, yada, yada. And then community, and this is one of the chief things. We all are socialized as individuals in American society. You know, our, 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 our identity ethic is the rugged individual who overcomes everything to sort of survive and achieve. So, so as, are the dots connected? Because I'm, I'm going to shift a little bit, but I just want to see, did, the, did those make sense? One of the charges to the folks who did the homework last week was to start thinking about how those values or how that has impacted the way this congregation has organized itself. So that was one of the things that um, the folks who have the workbook and were participating got a chance to have some discussions around. Next slide. So um, in the beginning, I indicated that there were um, five questions that I organize all of my trainings around answering. We have, to this point, gone through the first four. Like, what is the problem? Why is it a problem? Why is it my problem? You know, what can I do about it? And then how do I get started? And that's what we're going to kind of focus on today is the how do I get started part. And this will be a little bit more like a um, workshop because I'm going to invite you all to have some conversations amongst yourselves that we kind of talk to see if you can begin to brainstorm and sort of connect some of these dots. So next slide. How do I get started? Next slide. So there are four alternative values that I'm introducing today to those um, dominant values that I um, just referenced. So when it comes to um, leadership, if we thought of leadership as being um, you know, facilitation, 
as opposed to centralization. That would result in more empowerment of folks. I mean, other folks would be involved in decision making, other folks would have perspective. And if you think about it, particularly in a lot of organizations, the people who are on the front lines are usually the most informed about what's real anyway. Somebody who is few levels behind you know, up, are up in the, you know, away from the, from the um, impact on the computer, those folks are less informed. Now, they have information and perspective, obviously. I mean, they understand, you know, budgets, finance, other issues that are related. But when those folks are completely um, separated from each other and there is no real and authentic communication, then these folks are less informed about what's real and, and quite often make decisions that are devastating when it comes to folks on the front line or the things that they're trying to accomplish. And um, in the church, that's, that's ultimately pretty disastrous because, you know, that's the, you know, the people on the, on the front lines, you know, the church is to be equipped to do the work. You know, it's not the guy with the title who's the professional. Uh, he's supposed to be doing the equipping, if you will or she, in the case may be. Um, education is about experience. Mastering information, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you a question just for a little tongue in cheek. Who remembers the last time they took a test? If you remember the last time you took a test, raise your hand. Okay, so it's quite a few of you. What did you get on number six? <laughs> right? See, you master information so that you can regurgitate it or you can pass a test. When we write our theses, if we get an advanced degree, that's information that we've mastered and we figured out how to put it out there so that somebody can you know, interact with it and measure what we've, what we've mastered in terms of information. Um, but that really doesn't translate into anything. I mean, I'm not ever mad at anybody who's gotten an LISW as a social worker. I'm not mad at those folks. But I use this illustration a lot. If you were doing a parenting class and um, your program was designed in such a way that you needed an LISW to get the funding or do whatever, and the LISW you got, that you got was about 27 years old and gotten her master's, and she's going to teach the parenting class. She might have babysat her nieces. That might have been it, the extent. But she's got an LISW and parental whatever. Versus a grandmother who has raised children to adulthood. Which one of those would be more qualified to teach a parenting class? A grandmother. So experience, and then when you start thinking about experience as being the value, that makes it learning-centered, and you start adjusting the way you communicate to what helps people learn the most, or what things would help people learn. So that's a flip in that. Then there's an organic view of time, and organic view of time simply means this. The issues that we have to address didn't take six months to develop. That's the easiest way to understand it. So it's not going to be solved in six months. 
didn't take six years to develop. It's not going to be solved in six years. You know, the organic view of time, there's a, a proverb, if, if you um, think in terms of years, uh, plant rice. If you think in terms of decades, plant corn. If you think in terms of hundreds of years, plant trees. I mean, it's, the idea is that you know, it takes a while. The organic metaphor can't be rushed. The, the, the transformation of things doesn't happen on a time, you know, a, a, a linear timeline. And you never know how, what it's going to take for people to grow. You never know what, you know, if you've raised children for any period of time and you can talk to them for years and years about X, you know, clean up your room, wash the dishes, do something. And my 19, soon to be 20 year old daughter who's still living with us, still doesn't, you know, clean, wash the dishes that she uses when she's uh, cooking at our house. So you never know when, the, when it's gonna click. So you have to give room for learning and growth. Learning and growth has to be the objective, not, you know, sort of, metric outcomes in some way. And then this last one, interdependence. The real truth is none of us are independent. None of us are. To even think that is really kind of crazy if you do any kind of cursory analysis of that. We are all interdependent in some way, shape, or form completely. We are completely immersed in relationships that we are dependent on. And it really doesn't matter um, if you don't think that's true, it is absolutely true. There is nothing you have done in your life. No, even if you live as a single person alone in your house, or if you've achieved or accomplished something, you know, it, was it was not done in an independent way. You had other people and other things that you had to depend on. So the default is we are really independent, but more so in the church, we are absolutely to be interdependent. And when you are an individualist, you tend to preoccupy yourself with your own personal success, often to the detriment of other people around you. I'm trying to achieve. I'm going to get mine. You do you. I'll do me. Those are all kinds of things that we say in this society. Those are sort of the aphorisms or euphemisms that we use. But what's real in the church is that we are absolutely dependent on one another. That's the body metaphor. You know, you can't, I can't say to the hand, I don't need you. You know, that's the body metaphor. We are absolutely independent, and it is important that we recognize that we should be more about the community's success, not our own individual success. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one is hurting, we all are hurting. You know, so there's all kinds of you know, Bible that supports that. So here's what I'd like to do for the um, next few minutes, just to give you a chance to begin to sort of think and engage in a way that, um, that, uh, that you will likely be doing at some point in the future as a congregation as this process continues. So I've got, um, I've got a couple of uh, um, 
questions, I guess, I want you to, to, to kind of think about. I want you to organize yourselves. I want you to think about, um, would, you, would you, it'd be okay if I kind of grouped you up a little bit, like maybe those last couple of pews can kind of interact with each other. Um, back there, same last folks, and then you guys are middle. So maybe it's just like four or five of you in a group together, and I'm going to give you something to think about um, with these uh, uh, terms. Um, I want you to think about the way your congregation gathers. Think about the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the impact that the, these facilitative values might have on the way you all choose to gather, whatever gathering you're talking about, whether it's Sunday mornings or other gatherings that you have. Does it, are, is it, are you tracking with me? Can you go back a couple of slides? I want to just create the, the uh, yeah, right there. So... The charge is to think about the so so these values here have likely shaped this congregation in some way, shape, or form, right? They've likely been the way decisions were made, the way the leadership was uh, constructed on some level, um, the way information gets you know gets centered or whatever. So in, in the linear view of time, and then the rugged individual stuff. Now go to the other ones. Mm-hmm. In general. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's true, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, keep going. There might be a slide you can use that actually has the questions I want you to interact with. Go to, it looks like, it might be the slide right before the video. Right there. Yep. All right. So there are four questions, and I'm going to I'm going to ask you to center yourself around um, discipleship and training, and then congregational gatherings with those alternative values. Does that make sense? If you don't get it, just let me know. I'll try to. So I want you to think about maybe, like Joe said, maybe it's not your experience in this congregation, but in, in other congregations you've been a part of, or you can even draw from your own like employment experience and, and what you've interacted with. So, so what I want you to do is think about what would be ideal if you, if if the I, if if facilitation and um, interdependence and experiential learning were the values that governed how you all gathered and then how you all, um, maybe let's do evangelism and outreach. I'm sorry, let's do that one. Those are two, how you all gather and how you all engage the community. So those are the two things I want you to kind of talk about. And then I just want you to brainstorm a little bit and just take a few minutes to do that just to kind of get that muscle working. Is that cool? Everybody got a group? Okay. All right, pop me up. Thanks. All right, so uh, for the sake of time, and I know this was, uh, this sounds like good conversations, and I didn't mean to tease you, 
uh, so much, because I know, because these are the conversations that you all are going to have um, going forward. This, you know, as you guys continue to press into this, these types of conversations you'll get a chance to have more and more. The MEIQ group that Joe referenced, these are the kind of conversations we've been having um, month to month for um, like just over a year or so now, or close to a year or so. And you're going to have opportunities to do that even, even more and, and, and dig a little deeper into some of these things. But I, I want to illustrate, I, I use my iceberg metaphor, um, which you can see here. Go to the next slide. Uh-oh, no worries. There we go. So this is the way I've um, kind of amended the iceberg, if you will. Um, there's not a lot we are going to be able to do about our current dominant culture and our socioeconomic system, as it were. But um, when we get to make decisions about how we're going to design our organizations, um, we can... Uh, use those alternative values to um, begin to reshape, you know, our congregations, our organizations, the things and when you become aware of this, and particularly in the church. And then we kind of flip that so that it's not something that people crash into and are decimated. It's something that they can be engaged by. So I've got a video clip for you to listen to. Um, and... Uh, and then we'll, we're going to close this morning with uh, communion. So go ahead, next to the video clip. The book, this, these two women wrote a book called um, um, Broken Bodies. Um, oh, crap, I can't remember the name of it now. Um, I got it. But it's about, the, they, they center the Eucharist as their kind of metaphor for unpacking the harm that segregation has done to the country, but to the church in particular. And how we've, uh, because of that, we've actually just been violating the spirit of the Eucharist and, and what the issues, uh, you know, what the Eucharist is intended to be. And so, um, for those of you who are on the group, it's about a 25-minute video where they kind of talk about it. Oh, here we go. I screw you up. Oh, sorry. Sorry. But you all will get this video in the, um, in the uh, resource guide um, this afternoon. So, yeah, we can go ahead. We can go ahead and um, do communion. If you, if you're, sorry. Yeah, there we go. Hey, if you're joining us online, I encourage you to grab um, some bread or juice or something equivalent. And if you're in person and you didn't get some, there's some in the back. And, you know, uh, here in our church, uh, as United Methodist Church in particular, our table is open to, to anyone who's, uh, interested in following Jesus and willing to confess their sins. And um, so you're welcome to, to share a community. I really honestly believe, and I, this might've been some of the stuff that they were going to say in the video that, um, in fact, I, I didn't get one for myself. Could someone grab me one? And thanks, Molly. We're so organized today, friends. 
Um, I really believe that <laughs> it, it, this is Jesus's church and it's Jesus's table. And so I'm not, I'm not in the business of deciding who gets to sit at it. <laughs> it's that's above my pay grade. And, and I'm not, I'm not in the business of choosing who gets to be a part of it. And I really want to be a community. And this is something we talk about a lot um, where leaders are facilitators and where it's not about an individual success, but about contributing to a community and where transformation happens um, organically. One of the things we're going to talk about next in the next steps class is um, we, we explore our discipleship model is uh, um, a choose your own adventure. You know, um, here's some of the things that we recommend, but you're on your, you know, we're on this journey together and it's really about being on that journey together and not putting you through a making you jump through a series of hoops to be a follower of Jesus. So anyways, God invites us to be a part of his body, a body that is broken. It was the night before he was betrayed that he took the bread and he broke it and he offered it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. And it was his, uh, he gave the cup and he said, this is my blood, a sign of a new covenant I give to you. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd fall on these uh, gifts of bread and juice, um, that you'd make them be for us the body of Christ, that we might become the body of Christ. People who are willing to be broken and spilled out on behalf of the world. Bring us together. Remind us to always serve tables that are open to all people. In your name we pray. Amen. If you take the top film off, you can get to the cracker, and, and then underneath, you can take the second film to the juice. Just instructions. Take, eat the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Mm-hmm.